when you're making your film, why are you the person making it? What is your specific perspective? And how are you imbuing your film with that perspective? That is what's going to stand out to the programmers. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Sky. So, crazy time in the world right now, huh? Yeah, there's a lot going on, and and we know that it's been a while since we put out an episode. It's been mm-hmm. maybe a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is a great one. And and if we could, I just want to pause before we introduce this episode and talk a bit about where VC is and where we're going. You know, we started five years ago as a really informal group of friends and colleagues who just kind of came together to talk about video and the the craft that we all love making. And and it's and it's blossomed, right? Five years later, we're this global organization and we're volunteer and grassroots and we've grown totally organically, but in turn have come to, you know, reflect our industry, which is mostly white and male, right? And and by not proactively doing the work of uplifting our friends and colleagues who, you know, are black, our POC come from the LGBTQIA community, just the folks who are not traditionally represented in the mainstream as much, you know, we have, I would say, unconsciously woven a lot of the systemic injustices and barriers of of the industry and kind of of the world into our own operation. And that in turn perpetuates the unjustness of the world that we're that we're living in. And so, you know, I do want to say as the founder of the video consortium for anyone who's listening, who's ever felt uncomfortable in the context of VC, um, I'm so sorry. And as the video consortium enters its fifth year, we are transforming and, and totally rethinking the future. And I'm very excited about it. And I'm honored and humbled by all of the people who are actively working, you know, to change to change the narrative, you know, and so it's it's an exciting time, and I'm reflecting a lot as a leader, um, as just a human being, um, and my part in all of this as well. And so this is a critical turning point, I think, for all of us. Yeah, so. absolutely. This podcast should be it should be a resource for everyone, and people should feel free to email us or. DM us on Instagram as many people do and request to hear from certain voices that they feel like are underrepresented or to touch on certain topics that that they feel like are being deliberately excluded from the conversation that they might be afraid to ask themselves. Like we want to have those conversations on this podcast and really have it be a resource, as I said, for everyone. Totally. And, you know, all of these conversations are really uncomfortable, but in order to make progress, we have to just be really real and open and curious, so to speak. And, and I'm committed to doing that. I know you are, Jenny, and VC is. And so um, this is a, a time of reflection and of change. And also for anyone who wants to like know what the specifics of what we're doing, we do have a statement out on our website. We're going to be truly transforming the video consortium with, with real actionable things. If you want to talk to us about the podcast or about the video consortium in general, you can email Jenny, Jenny at videoconsortium.com, Sky, I'm Sky at videoconsortium.com. And we do want to hear from everyone and anyone. And we have been. And so, and that's, that's wonderful. And so thank you all for that. 
Yeah, and it's actually a perfect segue into today's episode because so many of you have have reached out to us and asked about what is the future of film festivals? I mean, we knew that everything shut down back in March at the beginning of this pandemic, but you know, what is what does the film festival industry look like long term? Does this change anything for filmmakers in terms of submissions or grants or programming? So I think it's kind of a perfect time to check in on that. Mm-hmm. So today we have on Layla Meadow-Connor and Barbara Twist. They head up the Film Festival Alliance, which is basically a group of film festival organizers from festivals as small as Mill Valley Film Festival to as big as South by Southwest. And they come together to discuss what's happening in the industry. Can I just say, I learned about a month and a half ago that the Film Festival Alliance existed, which is such an incredible thing. And I feel like most people don't even know about that. You I know? didn't know about it. Yeah. Um, and it makes so much sense. It does make so much sense. And there's so much, um, the fact that there's such a gigantic block between filmmakers and festivals and that festivals are shrouded in mystery. And so it's so cool that, you know, to learn that this, that this is a thing, you know, and how useful. Yeah. And like, why can't we bridge that gap? Like, why can't we start a conversation between the creators and the gatekeepers? I was really pleasantly surprised at how open and candid Layla and Barbara were about, you know, what is the role of a film festival in somebody's career right now? Do you even need to submit? I mean, obviously, they're a little bit biased because they're representing film festivals, but I felt like they were really honest about what you can do to better your chances of getting your film admitted. And I don't feel like that information is super widely available. Mm-mm. So I hope that this could be a resource for, for anyone who is um, trying to, to submit right now, even with film festivals, unfortunately not really happening in the same way. Right. And, and, you know, post COVID, like we are entering a whole new era, whether it's thinking about who is telling specific stories and how and and what and who should be behind the camera and who should even be submitting to or like do festivals matter i mean they matter of course they matter but um in a post-covid world what is filmmaking so um i'm so excited to hear this conversation that you guys had can you talk about what screening a film at a film festival or premiering a film at a festival does for somebody's career or their film. You know, I hear some people say like, oh, just focus on distribution. Just try to go straight to like Netflix or Hulu and don't bother with the festivals. And then I hear other people say like, it's it's essential and that you should spend a lot of time and money, you know, taking your film around to different festivals. Can you just talk about, you know, the role of festivals in, in a filmmaker's career? Yeah, I think something to think about is when you're making your film and it's finished, are you thinking about that you want to sell it, you want to make money off of it, and you want to move on to the next one? Or are you thinking about when you read the script or wrote the script, are you thinking about the people in the audience who are going to watch it and feel what you are trying to make them feel and engage with you in a Q&A? And see kind of all of these, I mean, a film, right, is made up of so many tiny decisions, exactly which shot to do, 
And then from there, exactly when to edit and when to cut out of that shot. Like, are you just as a filmmaker, like, great, I'm done and I'm moving on and I've sold it. I'm on to the next one. And sometimes you are, sometimes that's okay. Like maybe you made something and it's just, you're ready to move on. But I think for a lot of people, they are making art as a way to connect with other people. And they have, like many of us, that deep need inside of ourselves to share our art with other people. I think that's where the festival comes in because you're bringing together filmmakers, films, and film passionate people. And many of the audience members that go to film festivals are not necessarily cinephiles. They're not, you know, people who have watched everything under the sun. They're people who go to the movies because they want to feel something, they want to engage with other people. And I think that's what you get when you premiere at a festival. You get that experience of sharing this thing that you've been working on for so long with all of these other people. Um, and, you know, it's a really, I mean, for me, when I've premiered short films of mine at festivals, you're sitting in that audience and you are, I mean, I sweat bullets, you know, I have to like bring a separate t-shirt, you know, I'm like wearing it and you just get so nervous. And then the second the movie starts, it's sort of like, no one's walking out. No one is like crying when they shouldn't be. No one's throwing anything at the screen. And then it's all over. And all people want to ask is, wow, how did you do that? Or, oh, I was thinking this. Or, you know, there's just so much dialogue and conversation that happens around films. Um, and so I think that it's just, for me personally, I think the festival is is a vital, necessary uh, part of making a film. And I'll, I'll add on to that. <laughs> I totally agree with you, Barbara. Um, and you should think about your strategy as a filmmaker. If your goal is to get into a market festival, um, that's a whole that's a totally separate thing. Um, if your goal is to sell your film, but if your goal is to get in front of audiences, I think it can be hugely important to play the regional festival circuit. That's where you attract audiences, like Barbara said. That's where you can interact with audiences. You never know who might become the next executive producer on your film um, because you had the opportunity to talk to them. Um, and that's where you can like build your social media following, build your email list. There's so many advantages to that. And I know they can be costly and expensive to attend, but, and I think most filmmakers know this, that you should always build your festival strategy into your budget, not just like the submission fees, but the travel and be realistic about it. And there are grants that you can get for that as filmmakers. Um, I think that, you know, there is, I always go to this film as a perfect example of a film that premiered on the regional festival circuit, played on it for like about a year, and then became this huge sensation on Netflix. The documentary is called Forever Be, and it played at a lot of regional festivals, including Bend and Tallgrass, and I think Oxford. Um, and then a year later, it premiered on Netflix as Abducted in Plain Sight and like just blew up. And I think because it had already had such a built-in fan base, there were people talking about it all over the country because so many people had seen it at film festivals. So I think for filmmakers using the festival's um, circuit as a marketing tool is a really, really wise idea. And I think expanding on using it as a marketing, because that's, that's absolutely right. Um, so many films get made every year that are not going to premiere at a market festival, are not going to get picked up by a traditional distributor. And so you find filmmakers who are all of a sudden having to pivot and become 
entrepreneurs become salespeople of their own films. And in some ways, they're the best person to sell their film because they feel so passionate about it. On the other hand, that's why grant writing is a job. That's why, you know, like selling sponsorships is a job. It does require a whole other set of skills. And you as the filmmaker or your producers may not be equipped with that. And that's okay. And it's, I think what um, some tips that I always think about when going to a festival, if you know that you're going more the, um, you know, the self-distribution route, is to make sure that you get the audience attendance from every single screening of your film, whether that's a short and you're getting the short package number, or it's a feature and you're getting the box office report. The you know sales are sometimes maybe harder to get from festivals because there's passes and individual tickets and might be a bit confusing. But I mean, like don't like every festival is tracking the number of people, tracking the number of tickets sold, the number of passes sold, so they have that data. And I think it's really important that filmmakers reach out to festivals if you can't attend the festival yourself and get that information. And if you can attend the festival, make sure you are at every single one of your screenings and do a head count and then check with that particular venue manager and make sure you're tracking that information because down the line, when you are maybe trying to sell to Netflix or looking for a distributor to pick up a portion of your rights or even going to investors for your next film, you can say, look, like this is how much the film cost. These are all the festivals played. And this is the audience reach that we had. And that is huge. And I think that that's something that I don't see enough filmmakers doing. And I think is a really, really important aspect that as you're a filmmaker, as you're building your own sort of catalog of films that you made, you are also building an audience following. And so tracking your audience numbers, if you can get data in some way um, from your audience, uh, from the festivals, that's really great. Um, email data or anything like that, sometimes that's really hard to come by. Um, but there are festivals out there that are looking to become more transparent, more collaborative with filmmakers. So if you as a filmmaker approach them and say, hey, would you be open to this or that sort of thing? Um, you know, ideally, as soon as you've been selected, so it's like a couple weeks before the festival starts, um, you know, or even looping back after the festival's over. I think there's a lot of festivals that are interested in sort of what the next phase of festival life looks like and that could be far more collaboration with filmmakers i would agree with that barbara i was just going to say also i think it's really important if you i know that there can be fatigue about watching your film over and over again but i think it's super important to at least have one person from your team in the screening of the film you know watching the film with the audience so you know where even so maybe a film might play one way in Oregon, it might play another way in Kansas, and it might play another way in North Carolina. And having all that data is really important. And as Barbara said, I really totally agree that it never hurts to reach out to the festival and say, can I get, what data do you have? What can I have? Could you send out this email on my behalf and ask you know, people to sign up for my mailing list, especially if you won an audience award or you were at the festival and you met a lot of people. Um, and as she's also mentioned, I think that going forward, festivals are looking at at more collaborative relationships with filmmakers and looking for ways to support the filmmakers, um, at least the mission-driven festivals that are part of the Film Festival Alliance. That's what we're seeing. So I think that 
that is going to become, um, you know, a more prevalent option for filmmakers. Mm. Layla, could you could you explain that a little bit more? Um, this idea of festivals working with filmmakers more. Yeah, I think as more and more festivals this year are forced to go virtual or do online editions of their festival, you know, we lose all of these in-person interactions that are so valuable to filmmakers, like we just talked about, like being able to present your film to audiences, like participating in Q&As, like having educational experiences, like meeting other filmmakers. Um, And we just can't offer that sort of interaction at the moment. So I think that there are a lot of festivals who are looking at ways that they can support filmmakers monetarily. Um, That could be a box office split, that could be screening fees. Um, There are expenses from a virtual, uh, a brick and mortar festival that do not carry over to a virtual festival. Um, Most of these festivals are nonprofit, but they had budgeted for, you know, these in-person experiences. So many of them are able to do profit sharing with filmmakers. Um, And I think that a lot of festivals are really, really looking at that model, we know that we can't put on film festivals without filmmakers. And if we can't help fund those filmmakers uh, with this film, how are they going to be able to make more films? And how are we going to be able to have future editions of our film festivals? Can you explain profit sharing a little bit? How does that work? Yeah, that would be like splitting the box office revenue. Um, Some festivals are Festivals are doing this uh, in various ways, uh, the geo-blocking of films. Some do it specifically to their state. Some do it specifically to their region. Some do it specifically to the continent. Um, it really depends on the filmmaker um, and their preferences. Um, but I think a lot of festivals are doing box office split, so ticket sales, basically, um, or, or offering screening fees in lieu of being able to fly that person into the festival. Mm-hmm. It feels like everybody is talking about the future of film festivals with the coronavirus, you know, whether they're going to be replaced with virtual versions of them, whether they'll just be canceled altogether. Can you talk a little bit about what the next year or like fingers crossed one year, hopefully not two years or more of film festivals looks like? Yeah, I think, um, First and foremost, it's just really important to say that it is highly unlikely that uh, the majority of film festivals will occur in person until there's a vaccine um, or until there is such scientific evidence that, you know, the population there's has achieved herd immunity or something like that. Um, so I do think that and that that's for a number of reasons. Um, the primary reason is for insurance. Um, there's this event insurance, um, is just, I just, that has to be sorted out. Um, and I suspect that this will go under the clause of non-coverage. And so that's going to be very challenging, um, for a lot of, uh, festivals to do because they're working with venues that have, uh, event insurance, they have event insurance themselves. So I do think that that's a big piece of it. That's going to have to get sorted out. However, once that does happen, um, and we can gather in person again, I absolutely think that we will continue to do so, um, as we've done for thousands of years. Uh, People love to get together and share stories. And I don't think that that is going to go away anytime soon. What I think has been really unique, and what has been Um, Not so much revealed because we knew all along that there were people who couldn't attend our film festivals for a variety of reasons, Um, and specifically people in um, 
the disability community for various reasons. People who have perhaps mobility issues, um, oftentimes people who have um, uh, hearing issues or um, have vision um, issues and people who are blind um, don't come out to these sorts of events because maybe they're uncertain if there will be accommodations or if the venue will be appropriate for them. So that's not new. I think it's just sort of risen and um, kind of people are finally being forced to look at that, which I think is very positive and important. Um, so that is something that personally I'm very invested in making sure remains part of the conversation going forward. Um, but with that, I think that ensures that this virtual cinema experience is going to continue and that film festivals are going to find a way to have kind of complementary experiences uh, in part to address people who have historically not been able to come to their festivals, but also because it's a way to expand programming. It's a way to um increase other initiatives. For example, a lot of festivals work with schools and try to get school-aged children into their festivals, but that can be challenging. I mean, you've got to get buses, you've got to get permission slips, you've got to coordinate all these things. And so virtual cinema could allow more school children to see, uh, you know, an all for ages kids program, for example, as part of their regular curriculum. It also allows the film festival to extend their programming throughout the year, which I think is important because even though there are art houses, which are doing incredible year round programmatic work, film festivals often have a more specific perspective. And I think it's really important that those perspectives then get shared throughout the year. So that's another opportunity that virtual cinema brings. So I really see the future being both an inclusion um, of the physical space, which I think people are really going to want and deeply crave. I know I am <laughs> the second I can get out of this quarantine. Um, but I also think that there are new opportunities with virtual cinema and we can see how our audiences can expand and our programmatic choices can expand. That's such an interesting development, like positive development to come out of this is having these virtual festivals in tandem so that people who can't, who can't go can still experience it. Can you talk about the gatekeeper aspect of festivals? Like a lot of people feel like you have to be kind of in the in circle to be able to get your film into a festival and that, you know, who you know actually plays a big role in whether your film is admitted. Do you believe that to be true? I, I think that's true for some of the larger or more market festivals. I don't think that's necess necessarily true for the majority of the regional festivals. Um, I think that they are looking for new and the best content that they can find. Um, and the market festivals are really looking for those specific discoveries that they can say, this this premiered here and so-and-so bought it. Um, and so I think that the chances of getting into one of those festivals are better if they know you or if they've been tracking your project, if you participated in one of the labs or workshops that are more prominent. Um, but I do also encourage you know filmmakers to meet programmers. Um, and when you go to a festival, try to meet everyone you can. Try to meet the programmers, try to meet the staff, try to meet the board, um, because the more contacts you have, the better, the better off you are. 
I also think it's important to acknowledge that um, the many of the programmers for these larger market festivals, Sundance, Toronto, Tribeca, New York Film Festival, etc., um, they often are also programmers for large region, regional festivals, or they are traveling to those regional festivals to do exactly as Leela said, track projects, track filmmakers, see what's out there. So I think it's also really important when you're considering your festival strategy to not just, you know, kind of go big or go home, but make sure that you're applying to all the festivals that speak to your project. And so that's thinking about, you know, where you came from, where your story is set, where the people who worked on your project are from, anywhere that you have a connection either from the content of your film, the story, the issues, the crew, the actors, those like that really should make a very like large subset of festivals. And I would just, you know, make sure to go like, you know, really make sure that there's a reason that you're applying to that specific festival, but also don't discount the huge network of regional festivals. Because the other thing is those programmers do talk to each other. And so, yes, I think what's wonderful about so many of the festivals in the Film Festival Alliance world, um, they program so much from submissions. And that's really important. Um, but they're also reaching out to filmmakers to encourage them to submit, or they'll see something at another festival, or they'll hear a recommendation from a programmer and try to get those filmmakers to submit. So I think that that's, you know, keep that in mind as well. In addition to what Leila said, definitely be meeting programmers and as many people as you can at the festival, but also be mindful that if you're getting a lot of play on the regional festival circuit, your name is going to be heard on some of those larger market festivals. So then at some point when you make a film that does strike a chord with one of those larger market festivals, they are also gonna be able to champion you. Which I think is another, when you think about like the timeline, we just had a panel um, the other week uh, called Filmmaker Lounge that's going to be ongoing. And one of the programmers said something really wonderful. And I think it was Rachel Morgan from Sidewalk. And she was talking about, you know, someone asked the question, can you apply to the late deadline? And, you know, is someone still going to see my film? And she said, yes, we watch everything. Regardless, there are no programming decisions made until that time is closed. However, if you submit early, they screen in committee. There's th and so you're more likely to find a champion for your film if you submit earlier when there are fewer films being submitted. And then that person, you know, is like a dog with a bone. They're just, they keep coming back to your film as they're watching all the other films come in. So there is really something to be said about applying early and not just because it's so much cheaper um but there really is like you're getting kind of these programmers at the very beginning of their search and i think that that in some ways you know you might get a little bit more attention that way mm, you know i was actually just about to ask you about early and late deadlines and which of those is better uh, can you explain a little bit more like why people would be so much more apt to choose your film if it's submitted earlier? I think to add to what Barbara and Rachel said, um, when your film is submitted earlier, you are sort of setting the standard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when you submit a film later, 
you're running up against the chance of streaming fatigue from the programmers. Mm. Um, you're running up against the chance of the fact that they may have already selected, you know, a film about X, Y, and Z that, you know, is, is a better fit for their festival than yours is. Mm. Um, and I think that it's just overall a better choice to submit on the earlier side. That's so interesting. So if you are making a film about like, let's say, I don't know, police brutality is on my mind right now. But if you're making a film about like police brutality in like a specific city, and you submit that that film in the early phase of applications, and they select it, then a different person who is making a film about the same subject is less likely to be to be admitted, even if it's a great film. Yeah, I think it. Um, that's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, there's always the chance that um, you know they may see a selection of films on a similar topic and be inspired to create a shorts program around that theme. Um, but the reality is, and we see this with like you know major titles every year, major releases, is that somehow, despite all of us being unique individuals, we all tend to, you know, there's always that theme every year, like, wow, why did everyone make a movie about, you know, such and such this year? Or what was it last year was all about the, you know, that awful murderer who also happened to be very attractive, Ted Bundy. Um, You know, so interesting to see like three or four things about this person and you wonder, you know, how these things all kind of boil up at the same bubble up at the same time. Um, And so I do think that it's, it's not so much that, you know, a festival say, oh, well, we have this, we have this film on police brutality, so we're not going to accept anymore. It's just that it's going to be so much harder if they really like that first title to for another one to come up and stand apart. So that's kind of the important thing. And that also just goes back to when you're making your film, why are you the person making it? What is your specific perspective and how are you imbuing your film with that perspective? And that is what's going to stand out to the programmers, regardless of the subject. And so if they ended up with two films, both on police brutality, perhaps, but they both had a very unique, specific perspective, then it's not going to be a battle of, oh, well, we have these two films on the same topic. It's going to be, wow, we have these two films with very specific perspectives and let's program both of them. So I think that's a really important element to consider. So yes, apply early. That is best. Do not apply with a rough cut, especially a short. If it's a short, just it's got to be finished. Just wait until the next year if you have to. But, you know, I think that with a short, you have so much less time to, um, get the programmer engaged and hooked and feel that if it's anything less than finished, it's just, you know, it's just one more hump they have to get over. Um, With a feature, of course, I think, you know, programmers are, of course, very used to watching works in progress. Um, And so they're able to step back and understand, okay, it doesn't have final color, it doesn't have final sound. But with a feature, you have so much more time to have the story compel the programmer to really ignore everything else and to believe that they're so compelled by the story that regardless of how your sound and color turns out, they want it in their festival. With a short, 
eh, you know, you got a lot less time to do that. So submit early. If it's a short, make sure it's absolutely finished. Um, and make sure that your film is just so, you know, really has a, has a specific, unique perspective. Mm, yeah, that is something that just keeps coming up in these interviews we've had with gatekeepers and, and grant funders is, is what is your perspective? Why are you the person who is best to tell this story? And I see those kind of films programmed all the time. Um, people who are very close to a community or, or they're making a film about their family or, you know, it's very clear why they're the best person to tell that story. Yeah, very, yeah, very relevant to this year. I think that filmmakers need to realize that there won't really be any physical in-person festivals um, for the remainder of 2020 and possibly for the first half of 2021. And we're already into June. So we've already passed the whole spring shoulder of festivals. Now we kind of enter a slow phase and we're, we're, we'll go back to the, you know, fall festival circuit um, in a few months. And I think, you know, fest filmmakers need to think about their strategy and reassess again if their film is timely and say it's something that needs to be seen before the election, per se. Think about putting your film in online festivals because if it's timely, it may not have an opportunity to play the festival circuit until 2021 or 2022. Um, and if it's a it's a film that you think that maybe has opportunity for distribution or is more um, evergreen, then think about how you might switch your strategy to submit to festivals next year. I think it's really important for filmmakers to consider that that's probably the reality of the landscape right now. Hmm. I want to jump back to something you said earlier about subject matter you know, as you said, there are certain topics that seem to be popular at certain times. Like everybody is suddenly making a, a documentary about this person or this social issue. Do you think that there then is an advantage to making a film about something extremely obscure, something that you're you're pretty sure no one else is going to cover? Um, and it almost is attention grabbing because of how specific it is. I think if you have a reason to be making that film um, and it's either a personal connection or, I mean, it's, it has to be a personal connection. It has to be some reason, especially when you think about a documentary, um, there has to be some reason in you that you are the one who is telling this story um, that, yeah, totally. I mean, of course, if you make something about, something no one's ever heard of or no one's made a film about before there's a novelty to that and that's that will certainly get programmers to click on the film but the only thing that's going to get them to program it is if it has that very specific perspective if it is so compelling um right you know it's so specific that it's universal and I think that that's, you know, the the personal is universal. Um, you really have to make sure that your the way that you see the story comes across in all aspects of the filmmaking. Um, and I think that is what programmers are looking for. So it program, you know, a programmer could click on, you know, the one thousandth film that they've watched about climate change. What's going to make it interesting to them is what why it's interesting to you 
And I think that that's part of the process of whether you're writing or you're making a documentary and you're kind of going around and collecting initial research, you know, really latch on to the specific and whether that's your specific or your subject. I mean, it's like that. That's what makes it so interesting is that is the human interest angle. Um, At least for me, I find that, you know, watching a documentary or even it you know, a fiction film about a topic, environmental change, for example, like if it doesn't have, you know, if it's just kind of like across the board and feels like it's cobbled together from like, oh, well, like this book that I read and that thing, like, why am I watching it? Like, there is so much out there right now. There are so many movies being made every year and TV shows. And uh, while there's only a fraction of that is even available on streaming, which is a whole other issue, um, there's still too many hours on streaming for anyone to get through them. And so I think, you know, what makes me really interested in a film um, is like, is that special angle? And like, yes, I may click on something because it seems flashy and I'll watch the trailer or I'll watch the first 15 minutes. But if 15 minutes goes by and there's not something meaty and real there, like I'm, I'm gone. Hmm. A lot of these festivals, like you mentioned, market festivals, um, a, a big part of them for filmmakers is finding a distributor for their film and selling their film. Can you talk about how that process has changed as festivals are now moving to this virtual world? I think it's sort of too early to tell right now how that's changed. Barbara and I have had conversations with a few distributors, and I think they're all just sort of waiting to see what happens too. Um, No one said for sure that they won't pick up a film that plays on an online festival, and no one's for sure said that they, you know, won't. So it's, I think everyone's just sort of waiting to see. Personally, I think if your film plays an online festival and you can gather all this data from these festivals and then you can take it to a distributor and say, my film played amazing in Woods Hole, Massachusetts and horribly in, so, you know, um, you know, Topeka, Kansas or whatever. Um, and then, but, but I have this demographic here and I got all these social media followers because of this, like all that data, if you can use it and collect it, I can't imagine why a distributor would be like, I don't want that information and that's not useful to me. I have seen a lot of filmmakers mm-hmm. in the last year or two just sort of buck the traditional distribution system um, and, you know, take their films on tour um, and figure out ways to self-distribute where they're making money and they are um, collecting all of their own data and keeping all of their own data. Um, and I think that I think that that's what's going to change going forward. I think there is going to be a disruption in traditional distribution um, and I think there's going to be more opportunity for more filmmakers to self-distribute and to um, to become um, to to partake in the financial back end more. What do you mean by self-distribute? Like just literally put their film on Vimeo, or just not even go through festivals at all and just connect directly with these streaming platforms? I do still think there's value in putting your film on the festival circuit in order to build audiences across the country. And then you have all the data and you can say to a streaming platform, hey, look how my film did. I think it's really hard to try to do it on your own, Um, especially as Barbara was saying, there's so much content out there. How do you cut through all that noise? One of the programs that we recently started at Film Festival Alliance 
is an initiative called Film Festival Day, which is something we'd always wanted to do, sort of like Art House Theater Day or Record Store Day, but we couldn't um, assume that all of our member festivals would be able to get a brick and mortar uh, theater on the same day. Well, the silver lining of this is that everyone can screen a virtual film. Um, so we've done two film festival days so far, one with a narrative feature and one with a documentary that was about 50 minutes long that would have been hard to program in a festival block because of its length, because it was under an hour long. Um, and we did a, a Q&A. Um, and this last one was last weekend. And the filmmaker, the bo total box office was over $16,000. 39 film festivals from across 23 states participated. Um, and the filmmakers made, you know, $8,000 plus dollars, got all the emails from um, everyone who bought a ticket, now know the t all the, f the places where their film played well, um, and have access to 39 festival programmers. So, you know, I think that there, and I don't think it's necessarily unique to us. I think that there are going to be other opportunities like this for collaboration, where people come together to cut through the noise and to promote the work of independent films. And, you know, these are two films that could have potentially and, and would have been on the festival circuit this year. Um, so it's nice to be able to elevate those those films and support the filmmakers at the same time. Absolutely. And I think an important thing for people to remember, um, part of the uh, advantage that I see in the life cycle of a film beginning at a film festival, then moving to theatrical, then moving to transactional, and finally to streaming, is that all along the way, you're building word of mouth, you're developing an audience. And so you are, you know, you think about uh, how that's going to impact the long tail of your film and people finding it years later or people buying it down the line when frankly you get more, you know, when you're doing theatrical, if you're self-distributing, I think what's important is that you know, when you're playing theatrical, for example, your, you know, the split that you're going to get is maybe not going to be in your favor. But by the time you get to transactional, and then, you know, streaming is a whole other can of worms. But the way the transactional works, you're getting much more of it. When you're getting to the point where you're selling DVDs or single streams off your own website, you're retaining so much more of that money. So if you think of it in terms of word of mouth and marketing, the reason to start at film festivals is that you are going to play a wide variety of festivals potentially across the country who are each keyed into a different group of people and a different community. And they're going to be sharing your film and marketing your film out to their own community. So for Film Festival Day, for example, the most recent one, we discovered that there was over 300,000 unique email addresses that got blasted for this one film. And so that netted $16,000 right now. But what we can't track and what we have to just know is that the impact of the email going out multiple times to 300,000 plus people is going to result in Angela, the director, getting more you know, potential pay, recognition, sales, et cetera, engagement with her film down the line. 
And so starting mm-hmm. out at a festival, then moving to theatrical, it's the same thing. You know, you've got mm-hmm. a theater that's booked your film or you've worked with them to do a, a one-off booking and they're sharing it out to their newsletter. You know, let's say the newsletter is 10,000 people. Of course, you know, you're not getting 10,000 people in, but what you're doing with the film festival and theater marketing less is that when your film does show up online at some point and someone stumbles across it, they're going to remember, oh yeah, that film festival recommended this to me or that art house recommended this to me. And they believe in the, the tastes of those film festivals and those cinemas. And it might make them more inclined to purchase it, rent it, stream it, what have you. I think that's a really important part. So as you're thinking about self-distribution, it's not just I finished my film, click, I've uploaded to Vimeo. It's about building. And that kind of brings in the marketing. And there was for a brief period of time, there existed um, uh, a phrase called the PDM, the producer of distribution and marketing. And it's something that I actually think makes a lot of sense because I mean, it's it's the fourth trimester of the film, right? It's the fourth phase of the filmmaking process is distribution and marketing. And the more of that you can do on your own, even if you have a distributor, because frankly, that distributor may have different expectations than you of the kinds of marketing that they want to do, are capable of doing, and actually execute. And so regardless of your the film status, you are going to be involved with the distribution and marketing. And I think it's really important that, you know, if this is something that you've made and you believe in and you want to be part of your, you know, personal catalog going forward, like you've got to stay involved in that piece. Um, and so that's, that's, I mean, especially when it comes to self-distribution, it's really thinking about the audience and how the more that you build it up initially and you reach out as wide as you can, that's only going to pay off down the line. Seed Spark does a really interesting um, analysis of distribution for those who haven't seen it. And, you know, the chances of your film getting distributed and you making your money back are so slim that I, I think that a PDM is a great idea. And I think that you know, there's no reason, as Barbara was saying, in today's market, why you can't go from virtual to theatrical. Um, so it may look a little bit different, but I think that it's time that like everyone in this industry starts getting on the same page and we start having these conversations more. And we want to talk to filmmakers. Our festivals want to talk to filmmakers. Our festivals want to support filmmakers. Um, and, um, you know, we want to see everyone being successful at the, in the end. And I do want to give a shout out. So the Sundance Institute has done a very good job of several of their films, part of the, I think it's, is it the Creative Distribution Project? I forget the name of it, um, but it was um, uh, um, Columbus, the film Columbus. They did a very in-depth case study and then also a couple of their documentaries as well. The other one, Leela and I were just talking about this film earlier today, is Bite Me by Naomi McDougall-Jones. And she did this really incredible case study. It's in video form, documented the whole experience of taking their film, realizing that their film wasn't being sold and wasn't being purchased in the way that they wanted to, that they felt was um, appropriate 
for their investors, etc. And so they took the film all around the country and she talks about that experience. Um, and I think that that is also a really great resource for any filmmaker thinking about how, and hers is a narrative film. So it's, you know, it's fiction, it's different um, potentially for a documentary, but to be thinking about, you know, what are those lessons learned? Um, sort of what are those things that she, that she found? So I'd recommend checking that out too. Where can you find that? If you go on YouTube and search up Bite Me, specifically when I was talking about self-distribution and bucking the system, Naomi's a huge advocate for that. And she actually did this. She, Like as Barbara said, she took her film around the U.S. in an RV last summer. Um, and she was able to connect with her audience, collect all the data, um, provide complete transparency, you know. And, and at the same time she was doing that, her film was also playing on um, uh, TBOD so she could, you know, track how the film was doing there versus how the in-person screenings were doing. Um, and it was, it's a really fascinating information. Um, you can watch the whole series where she, she documents her stops across the country, but then the very final episode is where she's talking about all this data that she's collected. Um, I would highly recommend it as well. And, you know, I spoke with her the other day and, and since then there, there's been additional interest about that film and turning it into some, some other format. So, you know, I think that the hard work can really pay off. Um, it, might, it might seem sort of impossible at the time, but when you're building your own audience, and as Barbara said, it's all about building and cultivating that audience, not only for your project now, but for everything else you do in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. This has just been so fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners, you know, we're always hearing questions like this and you've just like knocked each one off the list so eloquently. So, so thank you guys so much for, for being on the podcast. It was great to hear from you. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Sky Dylan Robbins is our co-producer. George Itzak is our booking producer. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And Rough Cut is a part of the Video Consortium, which is a creative community of the world's top emerging nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're scattered all around the globe, and we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Milan, Paris, and with many more to come. If you want to join and become a member, check us out at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, go to roughcutpodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at roughcutpodcast and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, subscribe and rate our show.